Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, the kind of, I want to carry on kind of with this, the, the coffee idea, but the, the variety part of it as well, of how we, I mean, you're saying that when somebody gets slammed for talking about coffee, they're doing coffee in a different way. Mm. How do we kind of get over that? I mean, what, what is, the, is there a way of us getting over that? Is there a way of us doing it differently? You're quite, you started it. So. I don't know. Like it's, I, d I, d I do think there's a there's a definitely a push for everybody. Like something's announced on the internet. Oh, we're doing this now, and then everybody just does it. Do you know what I mean? Like everybody just does it. Like it's new grinder, everybody buys it. New basket, everybody buys it. And I think it's, uh, I don't know. We should be a, a lot more and accepting of people doing different things different ways. And even Rob's talk earlier, he was talking about how his, his the way he makes coffee is almost gone full circle. Like it got really short, but it got really long again, and it's it, it, it it's a sign of immaturity in our industry. And I think that, like, it's we're just kind of flapping for new ideas sometimes. Uh, when I moved to Chicago first, I was in I started running events for Intelligentsia, and I got to know this guy who was a butcher, and I was overwhelmed with how many food events were taking place every like weekend and so-and-so chef was going to be there and so you had to be there and it was just like constant i was like god this is really soaking up our resources to participate in all these events and i remember talking to rob then this butcher and i said like you know oh we're doing the same event um next week and he and all of the staff just rolled their eyes and went fucking foodies <laughs> and i had this aha moment that wait a second this is not being driven by the industry it's being driven by this media circus thing around it there are these people who just like to talk from the sidelines and kind of opine on everything. And that it really, it doesn't matter so much. And it's, it's hard not to be swept up in that and feel like you have to play the game a little bit. But I, I do think the places that are most interesting are the ones who don't care. And we, you know, we were talking about the cyclical nature of stuff. And I was joking that I think someone could have been in coffee like 10 years ago, switched off all their access to the outside world, and then turned it on again 10 years later and found that all of their techniques are still perfectly fine. Because you know we've all gone round in circles like crazy and everything, but we've ended up in the exact same place we were ten years ago. Um, so I do think there is the internet's powerful. It's dangerous, and uh, you know you've got to sort of just believe what you want to do. And I like this. I'm going to do this. It does have a lot of pitch to cute cats as well, though. The internet. Um, yeah. <laughs> Emma, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, kind of like what Marco talked about earlier with. The co World Coffee Research things going on, and SCAA working closely with them, but also obviously doing lots of their own work as well. And SCAE are doing their own work. Marco's doing his own work. Is there any way that you see all of those things being tied together at some point under the umbrella of SCAE, SCAA coming together with World Coffee Research kind of pulling in some of that external research as well? Um, just to yeah, thoughts on that. great question. Very timely. <laughs> uh, as the SCAA and SCAE work towards unification, probably you've seen, if you've looked at the SCAE website, uh, the infographic on this topic includes a sort of center of excellence for coffee research. And this, the idea behind it, I believe, is for us to have a place for industry to have a more unified voice to work with scientists and these different institutions all over the world to make sure that we are really keeping track of what's important and 
uh, funding research that's important and continuing to do this in a really coordinated way. I think that this is all really snowballing in, in a great time right now. Um, Marco, I mean, uh, do you see uh, additional resources from like other researchers going on and being able to kind of have that central point where everything comes together? Do you see that as a benefit? Yeah, definitely. I mean, for us, it's a kind of a special situation since like 90% of what we do is funded directly by some companies. And uh, it's great that uh, we now also have uh, sometimes some funds from SAE or maybe in the future from Unified, uh, Unified uh, Association. Uh, and I really see a, a huge potential because, uh, yeah, uh, a lot of the researchers are, are kind of isolated either from each other but also from uh, from industry. Yeah. I think it's really important that the uh, trade association has a few you know, reasons to exist in my mind, and, and one is obviously a chance for us to get together. This is what we're doing here, this is what we do at barista competition and all those things, but research is definitely something as trade associations should be doing um, to, 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 you know, to be a resource to be used by the whole membership, and if we pull that together with the, the aggressive takeover of SCAA coming in, then that's, you know, we can take, <laughs> I have to get it in at least once. I have to get it in, it's my job. <laughs> it's my job as Tamba Tantrum. Uh, We're the resistance. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to say that I think this unification provides us with a lot of opportunities because one of the reasons that I've always appreciated working for the SCAA is that it provides this neutral platform Right. If I worked for one company as a scientist working on coffee, I would be restricted in various ways, and you all are, can guess what those would be. And lots of research that's done now is private. And so having a place and a funding stream to directly influence research and get research done that we need as industry is for sharing for the entire community, and that's, and that's why we want to do it, and it advances all of our opportunities and all of our everyday uh, jobs ultimately if we do this correctly is there an opportunity for people to that work in coffee uh, like in cafes and in roasteries around the world to contribute in any way to this research and can you foresee that happening like I think a great example is 23 and me I'm not sure if people are familiar with it which is um, essentially a service where you, you take a swab I think it's a saliva swab and you put it in a vial and send it off they analyze your DNA and they tell you where you came from, what diseases you'd be susceptible to, like books and like pages and pages of information about who you are as a genetic person. And then you've got a back end where you can then input things like I've had this disease, uh, I find myself having like allergies towards this. And people all over the world are contributing to this, which is making us learn more about genetics and how we, we are made up as people. And it's a great example how like people without a skill set can be really, really valuable partners in research. Is there that opportunity in, in coffee going forward? Yeah, I think absolutely. As, as we grow more global in scope, I think that this, will, this potential is increasing because we, I know for the SCA, we have done some small studies where we do this with our membership. We call it member-driven research. Um, that's essentially pooling collective information and I think that that's a great model because people are really enthusiastic to participate and it's a great way to get big numbers and of course in a lot of the work we do we want to make sure it's relevant and correct for the audience so 
an example, of course, I'll go more into tomorrow, is the flavor wheel. The SCA engaged coffee professionals as a key part of the research study in order to determine how to position all of the words around the wheel. And, and we did that in an online platform that was available essentially for anyone to do anywhere in the world. But it was like crowdsourcing the data. A lot of sort of citizen science is happening in a lot of fields in science. And I would love to do more of that with us. Audience questions, I guess. It's, um, and the chance for you to get those ones that you kind of forgot about or you went and had coffee and uh, wanted to want to ask questions. So would anybody like to ask a question of our panel? Give the hands. We've got to come around that way. We haven't gone up that side at all. We haven't. Yeah, this side's been very quiet. You should all think of a question. It's like the naughty side. <laughs> I have a question for you, Emma. I'm looking back at one of your slides about the panel of the, I think it was Kansas University. Um, one thing that um, I saw uh, the people, how, how representative is this panel, uh, gender-wise and um, age-wise? Because we experience in Cuppings that um, there, are m there are differences between results coming out of uh, testing results from younger people, men, women, etc. Yeah, certainly in order to join those panels and to stay on those panels, they, the participants have to go through a lot of training and calibration. Even just to have interest in joining those panels, they have to first go through a lot of screening, and all that screening sort of determines that they have a basic ability to perceive all of those senses that they will have to use for their job. Um, so to start with, they do that, and then they commence in sometimes hundreds of hours of training. So essentially, as long as they have the basics and they do the training, uh, they will be these, again, these human instruments. It doesn't really matter who they are. That being said, they do like to mix up the demographics as, as they can, but it's not always necessary, which is weird for us, right? Because we're, we're sort of conditioned as modern humans to uh, diversify and represent our audience and our demographics. But with this, it's almost like we're creating a machine. <laughs> and if they can qualify, um, it really doesn't matter who they are. Okay, thanks. I guess uh, um, one thing is, is also that um, if you work with a reference, then anybody can verify it. And whether or not you uh, called an, a specific taste uh, from a can of blueberries or whatever it is, a five or an eight is pretty arbitrary. But as, long, as soon as you have it defined which component you take and which concentration and what number it is, it's, um, anybody can reproduce that. So as, as soon as you have a reference for it, it doesn't really matter who, who set up the reference because uh, you can calibrate yourself to it. Hmm. An interesting thing that I came across in the past is a, a guy I knew who was a taster for a prominent Irish um, stout manufacturer, let's call them Binnis, um, and uh, he set up a taste department and he was a super taster and he had a lot of that funky equipment that you showed us there with the nostril yoki mabob. Um, and he ran a course called The Science of Taste and Aroma and I went to it and it was incredibly fascinating about how 
like there's a scientific reason why coffees smell like blueberries or you know wines smell like you know uh, cherries or whatever it is but he was saying that he set up this like really intricate taste department within the brewery and got to the point after like five or six years he realized that he was useless because he tasted things that nobody else tasted that he looked at the beer in a way that nobody else looked at it and that their audience was a generic market that didn't appreciate the way he did it you know what I mean so he had to He's still useful, but in a, he stopped being the the dictator of what was quality. If that made sense, so it's it, it's a strange thing because I think it goes back to what you were talking about. Then is that yeah, you Stephen? So like that we will taste certain things. It's like well, like if I brew coffee for my wife four days in a row, and she goes, "What are all those words you use?" And you come back in, I'm like like Chemex, Aeropress. You're like, "Yeah, yeah, what's that about?" I'm like, "It's about how the coffee's brewed because it's the same coffee." Like we, they don't care. Do you know what I mean? And it's it's a balance between what's actually relevant and what isn't. Over that way. Uh, yeah. Uh, just going back to kind of what you were saying before, Stephen, about having the the good or the okay stuff and the great stuff, and then if you further that on a little bit to uh, cafes and roasteries who kind of want to do the best, top quality, also, but then maybe compromise because of money, or they also want a bit different market. Do you think you can do both? can one place satisfy that kind of need for caffeine or the market that wants something in a way and also try and do the best? It's a great question and I, in there are companies I can think of who try to be present at every point in the market, who try to have a solution for everything from the petrol station to the um, grocery store to the hotel that wants to the college campus to the you know and then to the highest possible end stuff as well and I I don't think they ever do a good job because people will always have some very strong association with it so I, I think my answer is no um, um, unless they brand them as different things I think just because of the optics one will win out for someone I, I tend to think I moved my time in coffee has moved from away from being what's in the cup to what's outside the cup a lot more. So I think about optics, about how something appears, and I think someone's going you're gonna have a strongest association with something. Um, so it doesn't mean you can't operate in all those areas, but just you're gonna have to, you're gonna be dealing with one of them being the most visible and most um, connected to you. Um, but maybe if you did different different brands, and, s and there is presence in the market of, of companies launching high-end versions of themselves boutique version of themselves to engage specialty market or to engage the lower end of the market. Um, again, I don't have an answer um, on a lot of this stuff. <laughs> I'm just wanting to see new ideas. But so. consistent. Um, a question for me, sir. Steve, a question to you as well, and I'd like to follow up depending on your answer. Um, if I were to ask you, are you li you're living in Chicago right now? Yes. yes. If I were to come to you and ask you what coffee shop I'm visiting and I'm going to you, what coffee shop would you recommend to me? Would you recommend to me the one with the great coffee or the one that you actually enjoy having? I think I'd probably taste? ask, what what are you going for? Like, what is it you're, if you're, because you're the coffee person going to check out coffee shops. So you're going to check out espressos or equipment or technique or, or, or to assess their flow. And that's not the same thing as being a customer. So I, I could talk to you for hours about that stuff. Well, you know. But where well is a nicest space to be in? That's a different answer. 
No, exactly, but I think that's where we often, we say we want variety, we want to promote variety, but as industry professionals sharing things, we, you see in the whole conversation, we always go back to, we promote the grinder, we promote the new equipment, we promote everything to make the best coffee. We don't promote anything to get people into those shops that do something a little bit differently. And so maybe a request to everyone to, to start promoting variety as well and to start promoting shops where you just enjoy going to rather than shops that have the best or the greatest coffee. Um, yeah. I mean, I was guilty of designing shops where I didn't care about people with babies. Now I go to those shops with a baby and it's infuriating because I have my stroller and it's difficult. And I'm like, you know, it's so, it's so, it's so, sh um, what's the word, sh short, what's short, short term thinking for so often that we don't, we're not thinking about the variety of customers and the variety within a customer. Um, yeah. But I, I again, it's, it's what are you going for? What do you want to see? I wondered how do you see the possibility f of uh, doing like a stepping so stone okay coffee in a, in a high-end environment? I mean, there's the problem of uh, too much acidity for uh, like uh, people who are not used to specialty, uh, especially in espresso. How do you see uh, the potential of doing also an okay coffee in a, in a high-end environment? A friend of mine, Devin Peaty, um, used to be an educator for Intelligentsia, a competitor. Um, he left coffee a couple of years ago to become a photographer, and, but he was very involved in it at one point. And he talked about like, that since he left coffee, he's like, I'll get, the, I'll get the old crop Guatemala. You're fine. I'm gonna have this with pancakes tomorrow morning. I don't need to Kenya. I'm not gonna spend that much money. And so in some sense, there already is that little bit of variety. Like if you're buying bags of coffee, like I might go for the cheaper Peru or Brazil you know, for those kind of slightly um, more functional, uh, simpler coffees. Um, but that's the only area I can think of where you have that kind of opportunity for choosing different kinds of experience in the space. And going back to what we were saying earlier, it's, it's, it's a difficult margin. As to whether someone could really openly say, okay, I mean, I don't know why they couldn't, because in wine, wine places have it. Wine is like, here's a simple house wine, here's a really expensive wine. It doesn't make you, you don't judge the operator for like, as if it's their fault for having something of a simpler, lower lower value. And I think that's the problem is just that we're dealing with such a small range all the time. It's just this, whereas wine is like a huge scope all the time. Yeah, uh, it's kind of interesting because I'm not going to do this, but if you had really crappy coffee at your shop and a really, really good coffee at your shop, then that would, like from a consumer's perspective, that's suddenly a range of diversity that helps them understand what is quality. But people yeah, aren't going to do that. Or if you just have like a solid coffee. I, still, I think restaurants out there would, I, like I know there are restaurants out there that will sell wines in the restaurant and go, yeah, I wouldn't drink that spill, but I would drink this stuff, you know? Like that happens, it does. Yeah, but I think we're, we act like the solid is amazing. Yeah. And sometimes it just needs to be solid. Yeah. Can we talk about babies again? I think you kind of answer it by chitty chatting. Um, but now I have uh, one kind of reflection. I remember um, Oliver Strand doing a talk and he was talking uh, 
not really about it, but he, he said one thing that really made me think and have changed <coughs> my way of, yeah, the way we're driving our cafe. And just like, okay, but think about this very corner in this very area, in this like culture and country. What do you have here that you actually don't have any place else? Uh, ending up like now we are ordering way too expensive thin quality and handmade in, in Sweden. But I also say when I go to, to Serbia and there everyone is trying to, I mean in Sweden we do have, we do have the filtered coffee, which we all love. Uh, we do have the espresso as an effect of, of the 90s. Um, and, but when I go to, to Serbia, they don't want to do Turkish coffee. Uh, when we ask um, earlier today, like what's the, to bounce your, your own question back, like when we ask, the best coffee in France. I mean, what are you doing? What are you doing good there? Like, it's it's tricky for Charlotte to to find a good answer. And like, what's actually the culture we're already having? As Taylor like comment on the the service in Norway, but Norway has Cook Cafe, or you know, like to actually see like what is it that that we do have? And thinking about the US, then like I'm, um, I guess your culture is that you're drinking like fairly thin, watery. Is it a way you could actually commercialize that or make that more or less commercialized if you want to? Or what, what cultures uh, from coffee being good in US could you actually like see, oh, this is not just an espresso and the basic, like the whole like yeah, echo chamber we are in, in uh, how a brand is looking and what drinks we are serving. Could you see something else in US being done? I don't know. I'm not sure if I follow the question, but I let me say this, and if this doesn't answer, we'll, we'll try again. But there was a time at Intelligentsia, it was been a few times, where they would have coffees that would be $13 espressos or $14, $15 cups of coffee. And they would sell like crazy. People loved them. And I would often hear people saying, it wasn't like $10 better than your normal coffee. But that would, but the, the vast majority would have had a really positive experience because they, you know, there's all those talks about value association. If you, if you pay more for something, sometimes you want it to be better so much to affirm your use of money that you enjoy it more. But um, uh, that was always interesting to me because it offered that variety. Is your question what about U.S. coffee culture could yeah, be? Yeah, I mean, how could you put some life in there uh, with some kind of culture that you're already having? I mean, uh, America is such a, I mean, I'm the worst person to be taught. I've only lived there for seven years. Um, so I'm still an observer and I'm, uh, I mean, America is a, is a country of imports, right? It, it's, everything is imported. A lot of these ideas are, are from somewhere else. Um, so uh, I'm trying to think of something that I think is of this, as distinctly American, apart from size, um, bigger drinks. I don't know if I love that I drink coffee at a, at a smaller cups often. I, I don't know. Like that, that when I think of American coffee, I think of like those globe pour overs and you know, like just like topping up cups on the bar. Yeah. I mean, like the whole look. A lot of Ameri a lot of intelligentsia shops were like are known for being very beautiful, very grand spaces, but a lot of that was informed by what was happening in in in, in Norway, in Denmark. 
you know, it was like people f copying that, saying that's great, let's bring some of that, because the culture was the sort of coffee house, central perk type thing, and they wanted to break a change. So then I think what was maybe interesting about the US is, uh, and this is all very entirely specific to me, but there was a, let's take that, let's take that change that we're being inspired by from somewhere else, but let's give it a treatment where it's a little bit more loud and brash and, and no fear, and let's just do this and make some big stark changes. And I maybe think of that as being somewhat American in, in, in it's sort of in a very kind of, especially West Coast America, like just big thinking, we're gonna do this, it's gonna be crazy. Um, you know, Kyle Glanville uh, was sort of uh, kind of one of my close friends and mentors and very inspiring in, those in that kind of thinking, like just why the hell not, let's do that. So it's a very lame answer, but I do think my sense of what America is really good at sometimes is just, uh, is just a fearlessness in doing some big things sometimes. And so um, that has positive effects, like beautiful, incredible, over-the-top spaces for coffee, and it has negative effects in the 20-ounce you know, drink of coffee as well. So I don't I know, is that a good answer? I, I don't <laughs> as an American who is a still a relative newcomer to coffee uh, <laughs> as an industry. I'll say that uh, when I think about traditional American coffee, it's that uh, you know batch brew at the gas station coffee or at the diner coffee. And that's very much a product of the industrialization that happened in the US uh, starting in the, in the 40s. But to that end, there, there's so many diverse coffee shop models now in the US, they've come from all over the world, as you say. And I always think when I run into that gas station coffee, I, I think that, wow, there's so much room for us here to improve. And if, to Steven's talk, you know, if we just help them get to be pretty okay coffee, you know, we go from uh, burnt diner coffee or old gas station coffee to really good gas station coffee or really decent diner coffee, then we're gonna introduce a whole other segment of the market to, to lots of opportunity for us. Diners, the way coffee is served in diners is one of my favorite ways that coffee can be served. The coffee's never good, unfortunately, but there's something about the service model of diners where it's a very, very long bar. I designed uh, a coffee bar called in for Intelligentsia in Logan Square in Chicago, where it was basically I, I ripped off a diner. And the, the idea was you just take seats everywhere. It was all bar seating and it'd come to you. And that's the idea. Um, when you think about my problems with takeaway, but my problem, but the, the great accessibility of takeaway is sort of ticked with diner coffee. So if you can, uh, I don't know. Look up shop. Look up photos of old diners. They're beautiful, and you can so easily imagine them being coffee shops. It's very comfortable. Yes. <laughs> but you can, and you can, yeah. <laughs> as a weird, well, I, I feel like I'm from Atlantis, somewhere in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> You've always been a mermaid to me. Um, so so I se I've seen one question down here that I kind of kept trying to come down to the hands. Do you still want to answer that question? Ask that question. I think it's yeah. I need to think about my question. Um, what it was again, but it was on um, when we when you talked about wine, and you have the very cheap wine, you have the very expensive wine, and everything in between, and we don't really um, 
give an opinion on the person representing that wine. Um, for me, as I worked in specialty coffee, I work for a green specialty trading company right now, but I also work for commercial coffee for a large company, Bauer Echtes. And sometimes I feel that within specialty, we kind of forget to see what commercial coffee is and, and the specialties that they have there. And especially now as, as a quality person who does the cupping, not as good specialty coffee, like scoring 82, 82, 83, 84, it's not better than the premium lines of commercial coffees. Those are also 82, 83, 84. And sometimes I think that as specialty people, we don't really try to see the entire coffee chain. And maybe I think that is also one of our issues that we don't really give room or you know we close off the lower quality instead of opening ourselves up to the entire um, line in coffee um, and see what we can learn from each other. So for the commercial part, maybe they can learn to keep their machines clean, to get the right brew ratios um, and get fresh coffee. And from specialty, we can really see what can we do with lesser quality scoring coffees, what can we do with customer service, which is usually much, much better in more commercial lines. Yeah. Um, I, I, I totally agree. So I'm, I'm there's not really a question, but it's like how can we make sure that we don't, as a community, close off? You know, we're very kind of harsh on people. For example, when we go into a bar, and I used to work as a barista as well, and a customer would come in and say, I want a cappuccino, but I want really dry, dry foam. And they wouldn't get it because I'm not making very dry foam for you because that's bad. Do you remember you know? David Walsh did that blog post where he took a bunch of supermarket coffee and yep. brewed it well? And he was like, it's not that bad. Similar. <laughs> it was like, it, and I, I think it's the same thing. I think it's very often stale coffee, dirty machines, um, maybe bad brewing and maybe bad roasting make, make us all think that the rest of the world's coffee is terrible. And it's probably, it's sad to think that maybe there's lots of great coffee coming through. And this goes back to Emma's point, is it just, like, ne as much as I say it's all getting very samey, I'm getting bored, I'm still overwhelmed by the potential and the opportunity and how much work there is to do. We're, you know, we're still, a s you know, El Antwerp's got a fantastic coffee scene. There's eight good shops. You know, New York's blowing up, there's 25. <laughs> like, what? It's nothing. Um... Fantastic panel discussion. Thank you very much, guys. Please, big round of applause for our afternoon speakers. <laughs>